what kind of intro music today? Uh, That's all I'm going to do because it was close to Disney. Today is Disney. Today is Disney. Today is Disney. We were talking about Disney. And today is season one, episode two of From the Proscenium, our podcast about filmmaking and film watching. (laughs) And and film doing. From the Proscenium Film Society. Yes. It's Dustin and Tim. It is Dustin and Tim. Or Tim and Dustin. Today we're talking about all kinds of things, starting off with what's what's upcoming for us. Upcoming stuff, exciting things. Well, first of all, before we get upcoming, let's talk a little bit about last weekend's movie, Thoroughbreds. Okay, let's do it. What do you want to talk about, Tim? So... I have talked till I was blue in the face about that movie. Because you gave a nice presentation before the movie. Yes. Did you get any good feedback or questions during that, or was it just Dustin talking? It was me talking. Okay. Uh, I, someone asked if that was his first movie, which it was his first movie. Uh, Corey Finley, the director, but he had worked in playwriting, so he had written and staged some play, some live play productions. Is that what you call them, live plays? I don't know. <laughs> that's, not, that's not my field. Um, so the movie really, people have pointed to. The narrative of the film kind of rolls out like a play, or it's kind of seamless. Um, but it was his first film. Okay. That was the only question. And then everyone just kind of stared at me blankly. So, so most of the audience had not seen the movie going into it. They came out with with, with, with what I guess was my what yeah, what the look of my face was when I first watched it. And your in your words right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was I didn't know what to think coming out of watching it the first time. Yeah, it was mixed. And then once you started explaining certain aspects, they said, oh, I like that movie. Yeah. I did enjoy it much better the second time. Yeah. The first time, because you have no idea what's happening or what's coming. And the second time, you kind of, you already know the story. So you can kind of see the clues that are throwing at you the first time. You catch things. Yeah. There's a lot of Hitchcock references in it, and it's good. It's intertextuality. I am not getting into that again, because you hate the word intertextuality. I do. I'm going to try to insert that as many times as possible today. Intertextuality. Without actually actually using it correctly. I'm just going to say it. (laughs) Walt Disney was an intertextual genius. Wasn't he, though? He did adapt and appropriate fairy tales, because they were free. They were free, exactly. And as we'll talk about, he appropriated other things as well. Pornography, as Tim about, told me. I don't know about, well, that's true. There was. We he drew breasts on the uh, ambulances in World War One. Remember that? Remember yeah. that? Yeah. 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 Walt Disney, we found you out. So upcoming, we have Eighth Grade in a few weeks. Directed by Bo... Is it Burnham? That sounds right. Bo Burnham. Yes. Yeah. It's his first movie, too. We're doing a lot of first movies. And we're doing a, lot of, doing a lot of movies that are recent movies as well. We don't show just classics this year. Yeah, this is like, Thoroughbreds came out last year, technically. Um, and Eighth Grade came out just four yeah. months ago, five months ago? It was recent. Yeah. All July. Was, yeah. How many months ago was that? Bo Burnham. Um, and in case anyone cares, I don't, it has 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Woo! Wow. That is high. It is. That's almost uh, Last Jedi levels of entertainment entertainment value. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am bitter. I'm a bitter man. 
We'll get into Star Wars someday. <laughs> It'll probably be about a seven-month series as we argue about Star Wars. His <laughs> maybe maybe we'll do a month per episode. Oh no, I, I can't. I don't have the energy for that. I do actually. <laughs> we'll have guests. We'll have reoccurring guests. We'll bring people in and say, "What do you think?" and then kick them out the door because yeah. we don't agree with them. And also coming up, we have the end of March 2019. Greg Sistero. We have been informed that that's the proper pronunciation or I think it's the proper pronunciation of his last name. Oh, we name. think? You don't know? Well, I was told how to say it. <laughs> I'm saying it. I'm not sure if I'm following the instructions. What am I supposed to say to him? I'm just going to call him Greg. I say, is that cool, Greg? Yeah. Can I call you Greg? I'll call him Mark. Oh, call him Greg. Oh, hi, Mark. Let's, let's, res- let's respect his professionality. Yeah, but I say Mr. Sessinster. Greg. Greg. <laughs> Greg Sessinster. Sir. Just call him Sir. Sir Cestus. Or Hey You. Ugh, Hey You. No, not Hey You. Yeah, it's a great Pink Floyd song, though. That's true. <laughs> so anyway, so the workshop coming up with Greg. Oh, wait, pause, time out. Pause, time Why out. is Greg even coming? Greg is coming because we uh, he is hosting a screening of Best Friends Volume 1. Which is his movie that he wrote. Movie that and he produced. wrote and directed, I believe. I don't think he directed it. He does start in it with Tommy. Yeah, Tommy's in it. You know what I really want to ask him, and this is like jumping the gun a little, but spoiler alert, he is going to be on this podcast. Um, reading The Disaster Artist, and he talks about how many takes it takes for Tommy to just hit marks. Is it still that way? Acting Like, how long did this movie take to get Tommy to do like a serious... Well, because the room is how long? About an hour and a half? Yeah. And it took them however many months to film it. I mean, it took three days to do the the, what, de- the water the, scene and the death scene. Yeah. Throw in the so water bottle. If they made a three, three and a half hour movie, volume one and volume two, how long did that take? It depends how long he's in. I don't know. We haven't watched. We're watching the movie yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, so. we're screening the movie tomorrow. Maybe they did Roger Corman and it's like, first take, that's good, moving on. Nolan does that too. He does one take. Really? Yeah. He's very fast. Nolan's very fast. As opposed to other directors who will be nameless right now, who does a lot of takes. Shining. (laughs) He's not the director. (laughs) (laughs) Directed by Shining. That's my new pen name, by the way. So when you see a movie come out, directed by Shining, it's me. Called Ninth Grade. Ninth Grade. Eighth and a half. Eighth and a half. Ninth Grade actually is from the perspective of the bullies, so it's really uncomfortable. I thought they were just freaks and geeks. The whole thing is the bullies just beating people up, and oh. then at the end you leave. Yeah, it's a popcorn grinder. Popcorn grinder. Trademark <laughs> copyright. It's a violent pop. It's a violent popcorn grinder. <laughs> I actually pitched to my class yesterday, not yesterday, last week, because we were talking about if they could film Clockwork Orange, because we just learned, we just went over Clockwork Orange, if they would be made today the same way. They agreed no, but then I pitched the the idea. I would redo Clockwork Orange. But instead of Alex being physically violent, he would be an internet bully. They didn't like that idea. But as I talked myself into it, I said, I think this is going to be a good movie. So I sent you a link <laughs> about that Andy Warhol made his yeah, version of Clockwork Orange. Did you yeah, read it's that called article? Vinyl? Is that what it it's vinyl. called? Right. Andy Warhol's Vinyl is his version of a Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Did you read the article? Yeah, I skimmed it. Did you try to go find the movie? No. Because I disagreed with the premise. The premise of the that article, better, or with Warhol that is better. Oh, there's no way. But it's Warhol. I don't care. Didn't he do the Campbell Soup Can? He did everything. Marilyn Monroe. I know that one. Yeah. What's that one called? 
Is it called just Maryland? Maryland's, yeah. Oh, okay. I think a thousand Maryland's. Maryland's. hundred Maryland's. One of those, yeah. He did a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. He shot into space, too, so that's my kind of... My dream. Didn't he get shot into space? His ashes? No, he's buried in Pittsburgh. Who got shot into space? Ted Bundy. Uh, I don't think it was Ted Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was Was Ted it one of the Star Trekians? No, it wasn't Nimoy. Because Nimoy, they had that giant funeral pyre in the middle of the desert. Because I watched that documentary about the love, the love of I've Spock. It it's really good. But yeah, they show at the end where they have like this giant funeral thing in the Iron. desert. Yeah, I don't think they shot him into space. I gotta look that up. I, somebody got shot into space. I forget. There was somebody. Well, we'll I want to be shot into space. And we'll let you know next week or next episode who was shot into space. <laughs> Maybe. maybe. If you remember. This may be like the room. You just won't know. It will never we'll never find out who was shot into space. Who was, who was this person? Unknown. And when it's Andy Warhol, you're gonna feel like a fool. You're I'm gonna call you Tom Fool. For I have the rest been to of Andy Warhol's grave, so I'm You don't know his ashes are in there. They were. I, I was standing on I was like, I'm standing on Andy Warhol. Yep. Yeah. So it I'm wasn't like Lennon where he was just buried or he's like on display for thirty years. I wrote that down. Who was shot in space? So we can answer that. Moonraker. In the comments on our podcast or... or somebody could email us. Or email us. Well, we have a new email address. Yeah. It is podcast at proscenia.filmsociety.org. If you have any questions or comments or things you want to talk about on our podcast. Oh, yeah, topics. Or topics, exactly. Uh, email us at podcast at proscenia.filmsociety.org. We could revisit Robert Weiss, since only like three people showed up to our uh, director series last summer. Right, we could show it all over again, and people wouldn't know. <laughs> this time we would get four people. Four people. <laughs> That'd be all four, all new people. Poor Robert Weiss. Not poor. He did a lot of stuff. Star Trek. So what else do we have? Anyway, um, oh, Greg, eighth grade. Oh yeah, the date of eighth grade. April. What is that? The first Saturday in April. I don't have is my it calendar. April eighth? That makes no sense. Uh sixth. April sixth. April sixth. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. And then moving into our main topic for today, we have Beauty and the Beast. The nineteen ninety one version. April twentieth. On April twentieth. And that'll be our first Disney animated movie we're showing as part of our Animation curriculum series. Our series. And That'll lead us into... Pan's Labyrinth is before that, though. Is Pan's Labyrinth? We moved it because of Easter. Oh, that's right. Pan's Labyrinth. We were trying to show movies on Easter. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had a schedule for Easter and figured that was not an Easter movie. That's true. Pan's Labyrinth is April 14th. It's a Sunday. And that is the kickoff of our foreign film series on a Sunday matinee foreign films. Yeah. So, going back to Beauty and the Beast, that kicks us off or leads us into section two... Where we'll be talking about Disney animated movies. Disney movies. Well, we should say this is part one. We're doing two. Part so one and part three two. three or four because... No, not three or four. There, there's a lot. As part. we're doing research, there's a lot. You can't digest not three or Disney four. animation in two hours. We are going to digest it and spit it right back out. Okay. We'll be back in a few minutes. This is part one. Well, a few minutes for us. It'll be a few seconds for you guys. Yeah. I'll four. do some music. Uh, before we get into Disney, I have something very important to say. It's a very important announcement, Tim. Uh-oh. 
I'm looking at your shelf of movies right now, and there's a new one that I did not see last time. I've been adding movies when you weren't looking. I was going to say, the last time I saw Eat Your Skin and I saw Into the World, I did not see the complete collection of ancient aliens from History Channel. Oh, yeah, that's a new edition. I was going to say, is it just season one? Because there's like 15 seasons at this point. It is. I don't know how much they have left to talk about with with the aliens being ancient. Oh my god, it's all of them. No, it's not. It's, it's not even open. It's <laughs> I, I just got it last week. <laughs> it's an unsealed, or it's, it's a it's sealed season, package. It's seasons one through six. Jeez. It's on 23 discs. Oh my god. Well, the top there, is that, are those dinosaurs? No, are those dinosaurs with, oh yes. Yeah, well, it's, have you not seen the series? Yeah, I stopped after like the pyramid part. Did I, the dinosaurs meet the aliens? Dinosaurs are the aliens. Oh, well, I know episodes. we. I know we are because they. I saw the one where they came down and injected the humanoids with like the DNA to turn us into humans. I right. saw that one, and Crazy Hair was there, and he was like aliens. Yeah. So this is season one through six. I think they're up through like season eleven now. Yeah, they're up there. Yeah. So th- this is just. I where did you, Where did you find that? Amazon. You bought it. I bought this. Yes. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. That's what I'm dealing with. It's, He's buying ancient aliens. So it's it's one through for six. an art project I'm working it on. It is not for an art project. It is for an art project. It is not. It is. For research. All right. Tim, okay. this is so this is your wheelhouse, so I'm ready to be impressed. I did a little bit of research, but... So, Dustin's subject matter on this, or his proposal, is we're talking about Disney animation from the beginning... Not beginning, but the motion pictures. So we're not going to get into Mickey and the Silly Symphonies. We're not? Are we? Oh, I wouldn't talk about Oswald, the Lucky Rabbit. Oh, we'll start from the beginning of Disney animation. Let's do it, the beginning. All the way up to right before Eisner took over. Which was the collapse. Well, it was collapsing before Eisner came in, which is why Roy... Yeah, it was collapsing. This is why Roy brought in Eisner to try to fix things. Because that leads us, that will lead us... Into Beauty and the Beast, because that is part of the Disney Renaissance. Right. And maybe some young millennials out there probably don't know. What's the Disney Renaissance? Well, Beauty and the Beast is part of it, so we'll get to that next time. Next episode. But before we can get get into that, one thing I've had to point out in some of my classes is that Walt Disney was an actual person. (laughs) Many people in the current generation are not aware that Walt Disney was an actual person. Oh my god. I know. And he was born in... 1901. 1901 and died when? I don't know. I just have... December 15th, 1966. Crap. Of lung cancer because he was a very heavy smoker. Didn't he have one lung removed before? Part of one lung Part removed. Part of the lung. Right. So, we're going to be covering a thousand years of Disney animation yes, in 20 and, minutes. And quick. And Dustin thinks we can do this We somehow. can do it fine. I'm, you don't have to talk about every freaking Disney movie because they're not all good, Tim. Uh, well, I agree with that, but like you don't have to talk about. But there's an awful lot of Sword in the that Stone. That movie people sucks. and technology and the war and yeah. Okay, happened. let's so, do it. All right, so get you into start. Well, you start with Disney. What was the deal? So Disney started animating in I want to say Kansas. Yes, Kansas City. Kansas City during the Laughograms. Moved on to doing the Was Alice... Was it 1919? I'm looking at... You, you look Walt at Disney's it. first cartoons. In 1919, Disney moved to Kansas City to pursue a career as a newspaper artist. Um, 
and his brother Roy got him a job at the Pessman Rubin Art Studio, where he met Ubi Earl... Uh, up Iwerks. Uh, yeah, I-W-W-E-R-K-S. All right. yep. Better known as Ub Iwerks. Up. Nice job. It's Up. Up? Up. Sistero. From there, <laughs> Disney worked at the Kansas City Film Ad Company, where he made commercials based on cutout animation. So, Tim, tell us, what was animation like during this time? So, the animation was very basic and rustic. A lot of line drawings. Uh, they were not the originators of animation. So, what was the process? Like, they would draw. I know you draw, but then did they, they film would, it, or did they draw it right on the cells? No, this is before cells. They were doing these on paper. They would take. They okay. would draw on paper, take a picture of it, and with a movie, a movie camera. Yeah. And it's twenty-four frames of paper per second of cartooning going on. So for every second you see on the screen, there are 24 pictures that were drawn to make that happen until we get to Hanna-Barbera when they shortened it to 12. Gotcha. So they were quickly drawing these. I mean, 1919, this is early. Like in, in terms of film history, this is still, we're still in the Stone Ages here. Right. Because film, I mean, 1890s, you had the... the um, oh. The Edison, the kinetoscope came out, and that's late 1890s. So this then we, is then we get the magic lanterns. This is 20 years, and they're already doing this stuff. Right. It sped up pretty quick. It sped up. It was technology. Yeah. So this is post World War One, 1919. Right. So Disney was working on the Laughograms. Yep. That company went bankrupt. He moved to California and started uh, working with Roy, his brother, and started the Walt Disney uh, Productions Company. Which they specialized in a, and I've seen parts of these, they're really bizarre. I don't know if they're on YouTube or not. Alice in Cartoon Land? Well, those were, right, those were a mix of animation and yeah, live action. they're creepy to watch. This they, is like the 20s, the they, 1920s. They were amazing at the time, and they were cranking those out what, a couple of months. Yeah. And then... That started fading away a little bit, and they, they created Oswald, the Lucky Rabbit. Because, like, during... I mean, historically, we're not going to get huge into film history, but they would show... It wasn't like now where you go to a movie and you just sit and watch the movie. You would have, like... You would go, and there would be vaudeville acts, and there would be these little animations, and there'd be... It wasn't just, like, one main... They would have, they'd have it's shorts. multiple, yeah, it's a multiple couple acts. animated shorts, and then the feature And movie. it was kind of a ruckus time in the theaters then. People yelling and smoking, of course, shouting at the screen. And, just like they do now. Wow. I would yell about that. <laughs> they were looking at their cell phones. They had the Motorola. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's not true, millennials. I'm just going to hit knock on millennials. So they did the... Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and Walt had signed a, a distribution agreement with a guy in New York, and I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head, and they were, they were very successful, and Walt asked for more money, the distributor said, I'm going to give you less money, and I want more cartoons. Is it Winkler? No, it wasn't Winkler. Is it Mintz? Charles Mintz? Maybe. Because Mintz is about to steal the rights to Oswald. He didn't steal them. He actually owned them. Ah. And so Walt 
uh, took a train to New York to negotiate with him to get more money. And while Walt was in New York negotiating to get more money for the cartoons for Oswald, let's say it was Mintz. Yeah. Had his people out hiring the Disney animators at the Disney Studios and hired them away from Disney Studios so they could make their own Oswalds. So Walt showed up to ask for more money, found out not only was he not getting more money, but his his animators had left him and he no, no longer had a crew to make movies. And he was devastated and the legend is on the train ride back <clears throat> to California. He was drawing on his sketch pad and came up with Mickey Mouse. And he was going to call him Mortimer Mouse. <laughs> and Lillian, his wife, said, "Let's call it, you should call him Mickey instead. And that was the birth of Mickey Mouse. Yeah, Mortimer Mouse, probably. But Mortimer does show that's up a, later on. It's a mouthful, yeah. yeah so, well, Oswald comes back, too. Right. Because so, I think they own the rights to it now. But that was a lesson for Walt where he said, I will never give away my characters ever again. So every agreement he signed after that, he owned complete ownership of the characters that were in his movies. So that was his lesson, his business lesson 101. So he came back, and many of his animators came back to him after they realized that it's more than just drawing these quickly, that Walt was a good storyteller, and that he could come up with these stories and guide them through these stories and knew what gimmicks and gags would work within the movies, within the within the cartoons. So, so is that was, Silly Symphonies? No, Silly Symphonies came in after uh, Mickey. Steve Willie. Yeah, but, well, yeah. Well, he did uh, what this says, Plane Crazy, P-L-A-N-E, yeah. which I'm guessing. Plane Crazy was actually the first Mickey Mouse cartoon. Gallop and Gaucho. Yep. And then it was Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie, but Steamboat Willie was the first one to have sound yes. integrated into the movie. And he voiced Mickey. And he was the voice of Mickey through, I think, the 40s. Yeah, he didn't do it the whole time. But, so, after they did Steamboat Willie, and that was a huge success, that people were coming to see the trailers, the, the shorts, before the movie, which included the short of Steamboat Willie, and they would not stick around for the feature. They were coming just to see Steamboat Willie, because they were just fascinated by the synchronized sound with motion. Yeah. And then they went back and added sound to Plane Crazy and was it Galping Gaucho? Galping Gaucho. Galping Gaucho. Which but Steamboat Willie was the one that... that and Mickey's produced. in all three of those? Yep. Okay. And then that set the pace for Disney to always be pushing the bubble of making the, the, the shorts and cartoons better. Uh, started introducing color and entered into an exclusive agreement with Technicolor. Well, and that's a thing people... I think we forget is how what kind of an innovator Disney actually was with some of this technology. I mean, we watch animation stuff now, we don't think anything of it, unless you really step back and say, well, how did they do that? Especially when it was hand-drawn. Now I feel like modern generations, and I was talking about this in Class of the other Day, where we were looking at 2001 and some of the stuff that now you can do just in post-production with a computer, whereas they had to physically do all of this stuff to make the camera move this way or to take this picture. And it's, it's fascinating, which and, we'll and, get into that when we get into the multi-plane camera, which he developed. Well, there's controversy over that, too. Oh, well. We're not going to get there yet. <laughs> Silly Symphonies was in 1929. So what he was the doing then was he, was he was challenging his teams or, team or teams of animators to 
push themselves with technology and their abilities to draw, capture emotion, capture emotion, and start bringing color, start bringing in orchestral, orchestral sounds. Uh, so if, if you look at them and watch the history of them, they were all a way of them pushing themselves. So and if you compare that to other cartoons during that era, the, there was something about the Disney cartoons had more emotion, had the, the motion, they captured motion better. So the animators would actually bring, they would model and pose for each other, or they had mirrors at their desks. So if they were trying to capture a Ooh, facial sexy. expression, they would make the smiles yeah. or the expressions while they were drawing it so they could look in the mirrors and see it. If they needed somebody to do a goofy walk, they would ask one of the other animators to go do, do a goofy walk, and they would sketch it and watch how the shoulders moved and how the, ne- the legs moved. The goofy walk. The goofy's walk. <laughs> so that the, their animation looked realistic, even though the, the characters didn't look like real people. Yeah. They moved in a way that made sense to us. They, they also copy and pasted a lot of stuff. That was before, before, <laughs> before, before Xerox. Yeah. But there was, um, yeah, there was just a lot of innovation going on at the time, including, as you mentioned, the multiplane camera. Well, film in general. And film in I general, mean, there was that was it's kind of like their internet at the time. <coughs> the technology for making films was was happening very rapidly and increasing expo- exponentially at that time. So apparently, Silly Symphonies came out in twenty nine and. Uh, Silly Symphonies featured Mickey and his new friends, which was Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, Goofy, and Pluto. Uh, supposedly one of the most popular cartoons, Flowers and Trees, was the first to be produced in color and to win an Oscar. Yep. How many Oscars did he have? 13? Walt has, as of, according to Wikipedia, um, has the holds the record for most Academy Awards earned by an individual. He has won 22 Oscars 22. with 59 nominations. How many nominations do you have? 57? Uh, you're, getting, you're getting close. I'm getting close to the <laughs> nominations, but I'm not anywhere close to the. the you can work. You know what? I'll let you on my new project, ninth grade. It's gonna be good. Okay. It's gonna be a hit. Yeah, and yeah. I'm sure we'll win every <laughs> Oscar that the year that it comes out. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll catch up to to Walt in no time. So the depression hits 29, um, and in 33 they released the Three Little Pigs, with its title song "Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf," which supposedly became a theme for the country in the midst of the depression. And on December 21st, 1937, the first full-length animated feature, Tim? Pinocchio. No, Snow White. Snow White, I know. Snow White Goodness and the Seven Dwarfs. gracious. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So that movie set all kinds of buzz and records. It made $1.4 million. So when That's a lot of money. Walt first proposed making that movie, he was proposing it to make it as the first full-length animated motion picture. And everyone in Hollywood called it Walt's Folly, that he was investing millions and millions of dollars into this that was, be, that was going to destroy his studio, that, he, that everyone just thought it was going to be a complete and utter failure. That wasn't until Bambi. Right. But every, well, <laughs> right. As, 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 as you track the history of the movies, every movie was putting the studio on the risk of bankruptcy. If, that, yeah. if any of the movies failed, Disney would have gone out of business. But a lot of those movies, like... So Snow White was a hit, but then the next one, which I think was Pinocchio, Sec- I think yep, Pinocchio, Pinocchio was the second. It was Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi, I think, if I remember that we right. We have the list in front of us. 
But, uh, Snow White, oh, yeah, Fantasia, okay. Reluctant Dragon. No, Dumbo. not Reluctant Dragon. Oh, Dumbo. Yeah, yeah. Dumbo. But I, but each of those films had some aspect of innov- innovative film work in it. And the problem, I mean, now you go retrospectively back and say, well, Fantasia's a masterpiece. But at the time, it was, in a way, those films were experimental. And so for a Depression-era audience, I mean, and then they hit World War II. It's not that they flopped completely, but they didn't bring in what Snow White brought in. And I think that was right devastating for because a lot of people point to if what kind of movies they would have he would have produced if certain things hadn't happened if fantasia hadn't flopped if there hadn't been the strike where he lost a large swath of the animators where they kind of stopped experimenting and then kind of went to more mainstream type of which worked for him i mean then you get cinderella and all those but this this era is they usually point to and say it was his innovative experimental era. Well, and Fantasia is definitely experimental. If you, if you go back and watch that, there's all kinds of different things they're working with in that movie. And to watch it now and realize that all of that was hand-drawn, yeah. and you start looking at it, it's just amazing what they were able to pull off with that technology in 1940. And, and at the time, with film in general, the music generally wasn't that symphonic i mean it was symphonic but it didn't match up with the action that didn't really come around like we know it today with john williams scores until post 68 69 because before that you got a lot of well in the 60s you had electronic kind of scores but before that you would just have like this general soundtrack in the background with strings and then it would swell when they hug or whatever but Fantasia takes the music and actually integrates it into the action, which was and I mean, it's I'm, revolutionary. And I might be dusting off incorrect facts here, but I believe Fantasia was the first one done in quadraphonic sound. I don't know that. They were, I, don't know. Uh, they were, I think they recorded that in quadraphonic. I could be wrong on that one. We'll clarify later. But I believe it was, that was experimenting with quadraphonic sounds. So you would hear, while you're in the theater, you would hear the as, dip- if you were, as, as if you were in the middle of the symphony. But it also required the theaters to make this huge investment well, in new sound systems, yeah. which a lot of them did not do. So, right. So another factoid, and it, well, trivia, trivioid, trivioid in Pinocchio. If you watch the opening scene of Pinocchio, which is just stunning, oh, I was going to talk about that. Um, the I read in a book. I forget which book it was, so I can't cite the source. But they blew the entire budget for Pinocchio on the opening scene. In that, in the movement, and they loved it because they were they were so in love with what they were able to do with it, and then they realized they blew the entire budget, and so they they couldn't do that level of beautiful animation and the multiplane. So when we get the to the, the movie, yeah. So when we get to the multiplane camera, um, which he, which I didn't realize they had used in Snow White. I thought it was later, but they did have it. There's a, if anyone's interested, there's some great YouTube. There's a great YouTube video of Walt Disney explaining the multiplane camera, and they show they don't show Pinocchio, but he shows. Um, the, they do an example of of the moon. The yeah, it's the moon field. because what the multiplane camera does, and I'm gonna try to explain this without the visual elements, is you have a camera positioned, let's say, at the ceiling, pointing towards the floor. In between the floor and the ceiling, and the floor and the camera, you'll have different plates of glass, which will have different levels, of different planes of images. So this this enables them to move 
move the planes back and forth. You can move the camera up and down. So what happens is instead of just the two-dimensional uh, movement, you can now kind of get a, a more clear foreground, background movement instead of just the lateral and character then, walking back and forth. And in the example that you're talking about on YouTube with, with Walt explaining it, is it allows the moon to stay the same shape and same size if it's on the same plane as you move in closer the moon would get bigger right By having on multiple planes as you zoom in with your camera the moon is staying the same size as it would as if you're walking and i think they did scene. just zoom i don't think they i don't think they track do they or did they track? It was tracking because each of the planes could move up and down okay because zoom generally flattens your image out if you use zoom right so uh, yeah, if you track, it's a little different because it'll keep it all kind of. And, and again, if you're if you're thinking about it, this is all being done, individual frame by individual frame. Oh, yeah. So they would take a picture, move each of the planes just a little bit, uh-huh. take another picture, move the planes Time just a little bit, and it, it took a lot of skill to know, just like stop motion animation, how much can you move each piece? How much is how much movement happens in one twenty fourth of a second? Yeah. It's like that episode of Parks and Rec when Ben gets depressed and makes the stop motion film. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> they show it at the end and it's like five seconds. A man gets out of bed and then it shows him and he goes, that took three months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on the multiplane, I always thought, oh, I had read that Ub Iwerks, because Ub left Disney and started his own production studio and was making his own cartoons. Those didn't go so well. He came back, but he didn't want to do an animator anymore. He wanted to be the technical wizard at Disney Productions. So I had heard or read that Ub was the one that invented the multiplane camera. And there is a patent with Walt's name on it for the multiplane camera. But in doing more research, there was an artist in Germany. I'm looking up her name real quick. Charlotte Reniger. And this is pre-World War II, so... Yeah, this... she. She made a movie uh, translated from German, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, in 1926, which is a color-tinted animated film that it's used Weimar. a multiplane camera. It's Weimar Republic. Yeah. And her husband uh, was also an animator and helped create the technology for that movie. And I was watching part of Did it. They come, were they today. immigrants? They were, they this immigrate? was in Germany. I, don't, I, I know. I just wonder, because a lot of Weimar filmmakers came to America when Hitler took over and so we kind of integrated a lot of what they were doing in the 20s in Germany into our cinema so a lot of the cinema like a lot of American cinema in the 20s is very boring Um, and it wasn't until the Germans kind of immigrated and they brought along like their noir movies and their horror movies and we started experimenting with camera movement and light and shadows and and that's the same as this came so now you can have these technologies That we wouldn't have had. I mean, we might have had. I, you know, but a lot of the Germans brought that stuff to America and integrated it into our films. So, for folks out there who are experts in the multiplane camera, we are giving Charlotte <laughs> Reniger and her husband credit for <laughs> potentially inventing the multiplane camera yes. that Disney then perfected or enhanced for their their movies. But I mean, the point is, I mean, I think I read that they used the multiplane up until, I think Little Mermaid was the last one, which makes sense because Beauty and the Beast then was the first to integrate computers. So the ballroom scene in Beauty and the Beast where you had the camera movement um, was, I think, computer, computer generated. 
Right. Whereas the opening scene of Little Mermaid, you have the mermaid swimming in, and it and it and the camera moves towards the whatever the underwater castle. That was multiplane. Right. I remember seeing an interview with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Of course, we're getting into yeah, the, yeah. that one, but that there were I forget how many millions of hand drawn bubbles. Oh, I bet. And Little Mermaid. And penises. Remember that? I remember that. Just the castle on the cover. Just the castle on the cover. That'll be later. We'll talk yeah. about that. <laughs> Teaser. For yeah. There's part penises two. in Little Mermaid. <laughs> so going back, so multiplane camera. But multiplane oh, camera. Put, I mean, pushing if, themselves and, and just moving the technology and even the, when you the watch skills forward. Even when you watch Snow White now, um, which they released what a couple years ago on Blu-ray. Um, it is impressive to watch how, like the scene where the huntsman tells her to flee and she runs in the woods because she moves through the background and foreground, but the foreground is moving the entire time, which when you just watch it, sit there, watch it, you think, oh, she's running through the forest. But yeah, it was all this multi-plane camera that was able to do that. step back and go, they were doing this by hand. Yeah. Yeah. And the same way with the opening of Pinocchio, they were talking about where the camera, I mean, that's a... That's a masterpiece of an opening just because you have the little village and the camera moves from its extreme far shot and then it cuts and it moves down into this village and you're moving through the streets. I mean, that's stuff that we do now with like Steadicam and live, but they were doing that in 1940 in Pinocchio with animation. Which right, is, I'm looking because Snow White came out according to some website, December... Right? 1937. Pinocchio came out February 1940. So in a year and a half, you can see how much their abilities changed and progressed between Snow White and the opening of Pinocchio. Then in 41 was the strike, which was was crippling. Um, And a lot of the strike, so a lot, we didn't really touch too much on this yet, but kind of Disney's persona that we think of now. Um, you know the, the racism, the the what, he was anti-Semitic supposedly and hated women, and some of this stuff was brought to bear based on the strike. So he was kind of smeared. He smeared people. I mean, it was a nasty thing. So up until the strike, Walt viewed his business as if everyone was part of the family. I mean, everyone called him Walt. He wasn't Mr. Disney. If someone called him Mr. Disney, he would say, "Call me Walt." He would have lunch in the lunchroom with all the animators. He thought everyone was getting along fine and dandy. But I, from what I remember, some of the animators were getting upset because they were not getting any credit. It's all yes. Walt. I mean, Walt was Walt was the individual nominated for 59 Oscars, even though they were doing the work. And I think I read somewhere that... And they that... were asking for more money, and then you had the animators, you had the... I think it was something like they felt that the high-up execs like Walt and the other people had better benefits than they did, which they did. However, I read somewhere else that Disney Studios at the time was the highest paid. They were the highest paid animators in Hollywood. Um, But that didn't, I mean, nonetheless. You also had at the time in Hollywood in general, people were unionizing, and Disney was not allowing unions. Right. Um, So you had kind of a culture of this, you got to join the union, you got to join the union, and they wanted to unionize so they could get access. I guess he had... Because they moved to a new studio. Right. He spent all the company's money... After Snow White. ...making a a whole new studio with special... Which was in Burbank? Was that the Burbank studio? Yeah. Yeah. And at that 
started adding more of the separation because in the old one everyone was cramped together and working together and then they started having separate areas for the animators versus the in-betweeners versus ink and paint they all had their own departments in their buildings and it took away from some of the camaraderie that was going on and then the the people wanting more money because they were doing all the work and then like you said the union started popping up in yeah. industry all over the all over the country yeah and this was 40 41 so yeah pre we we hadn't entered world war ii yet as a country but because on in september of 41 people went back to work um salaries were kind of doubled 40-hour work week and screen credits were established because another thing they're mad i don't know if you mentioned this they're mad because walt got all the credits so they would right. work on the you know, fantasia and stuff and they'd be like walt disney which he kind of once they got successful he got a pull back on and he was more of a not an ideas guy but he was the boss but, but they were it's just like a rock band you don't know most people don't know the the names of the members of pink floyd there's no pink floyd yes they do not most people don't. I, I so, beg to differ. So at that point in time, you would see. I would say Slipknot. No one knows the names of Slipknot. <laughs> you see Walt Disney presents Pinocchio, and you would see the screen with directed by, animated by, and you'd see their names. But I don't think they were. You didn't know their faces. They just there, there was no recognition. It, it was Walt. You just showed me their faces, and I'm glad. Well, this, that like, we didn't know their faces. Right. Well, like I said, it was a. <laughs> Old white a, a picture of the nine Disney's nine old men as they were older, and they looked like old men. Yeah, and then kind of grumpy. Couple yeah. of them were grumpy. One looked like Elton John. Yeah, Ward Kimball. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that came out—I mean, a couple things came out of the strike. Um, one was that I was reading when some of these animators that people left, you wouldn't have—they went on to work and develop other properties so some went and developed looney tunes for instance um some went and developed like bill melendez yep uh was the director of charlie brown christmas which i love charlie brown christmas uh so you had this whereas disney kind of had a hold on the animation at the time because he was so successful or that studio was successful this kind of broke it up um and they went on and other people did other things which we'll see later on happens again um, but the other thing that came out of this is the Disney was the communist hearings where he started calling out, uh, people in the union and it, it got nasty. And that's where you get a lot of this. Well, during the strike, he out during the strike, he, Roy, who, so there's Roy and Walt, they were brothers. Walt was the creative guy. Roy was the business guy is the typical yeah. stereotype, even though it wasn't quite <laughs> that way. But during the strike, Roy sent Walt away because Walt was so emotionally invested and he was so devastated that his animators were striking against him. Roy sent him away um, so that Roy could deal with the, with the, the strike. So when Walt came back, it was all ah. handled and taken care of. So going back a little bit, we're talking about the music. So if you listen to some of the early, I believe, Silly Symphonies, the music will sound familiar because they were... Um, conducted and written by Carl Stalling, mm-hmm. who later on was he in Pink Floyd? No, he was not. <laughs> I know, but he left Disney and was the writer for all the Looney Tunes music. Ah, so if you listen to the early Disney and it sounds Looney Tunesy, it's because Carl was with Disney and then left Disney because of creative differences and went over to Looney Tunes. But Looney Tunes kind of plays off that early, like we were talking about the Silly Symphonies and stuff, where it's just quick, episodic. 
lampoonish kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Which makes sense, but I mean, Charlie Brown Christmas though does not sound like Silly Symphonies. No, it does not. I don't think Carl wrote on that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Sad little tree. But on so, two, so, so he got strike, past the strike. He got past the strike. He developed Disneyland. They get into World Who War Two. Um, the they did the, that cool Donald Duck fighting the Nazi. Well, the, cartoon. <laughs> the, the the studios were again on the verge of bankruptcy, so Walt let the military move into the studios mm-hmm. and was making propaganda propaganda films. films in order to keep the company afloat during the war. Yeah, and after the war, the money that Disney owned in Europe was no longer allowed to move back to the US so they had to start making their own movies in Europe which or in England which gets us into some of the live action movies that were made Ichabod Mr. Toad? No this is the live action ones oh oh the live action ones some of those they they were made in in England because the money could not come back to the US to be made yeah so well that's why other studios were doing that too. Yeah. So it, it, so the, the the war had a big effect. Yeah. On the Hollywood in general. On Hollywood, exactly. So what else? What else was happening in the film industry at the end of World War Two, besides Disney? What was, besides what, Disney. Yeah. What was going on? Oh, end of World War Two. What was going on? The end of World War Two, if I'm remembering right. Because the 20s was kind of the golden age. That's when you had the movie palaces. The Depression hit Hollywood hard, but you still had some great movies coming out, like Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind. Um, Casablanca was towards the end of it. Um, The war, and then you kind of had like this revamping of Hollywood when you got back into it. And this is when you got into the um, drive-ins started popping up. In the 50s, uh, you started getting more churn them out kind of stuff. The problem was Hollywood, the studios felt the crunch, and eventually it would lead to the collapse in the early 60s, late 60s. Um, and I'm, I, you've caught me on the spot. I'm trying to remember when the... <laughs> what about the code? The pre, you keep talking about pre- The code, code was still going on. The code went... The, the Hayes Code was in effect from the 30s until about 66... Um, so what happened before the the Hayes Code came in? It it just stayed. I mean, right? But you 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 keep, you've you've told me about what type of movies were being oh, made. Oh, like pre code era yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, like Snow White is a little on the cusp of pre code. Um, you were freer in the pre code days to have themes that might not be morally approved by quote unquote America, um, and that's what frustrated the Catholic League. And so they saw a lot of Hollywood as being immoral. And so they, they kind of got together and said, well, we're not going to distribute your movies, and we're going to boycott them because there were a lot of Catholics going to see these, um, unless you let us look at these movies and we tell you what's approved, what's not approved. So things like you weren't allowed to show the police as being villains. Pre-Hays Code, you had a lot of gangster movies where you would have an amoral character like Scarface. Right. Um, or what was the Angels, was it Angels of 30, uh, what was the name of that one? Cagney, Cagney, Cagney. Crap. Moving on. Is it Angels of 30 Wings? I sure. He did Scarface yeah. too, but yeah, you would have these movies where 
the hero, which we know these characters now because they've kind of been enveloped into Hollywood, but back then they would do things that weren't moral. Um, women were more free in the pre-code, so there was more sex off screen, of course, but it was implied that these women were having lots of sex. Um, there's a movie, The Divorcee, which came out in, oh man, late 30s, maybe 40. Um, that won an, it won an Academy Award, one of the first or second Academy Awards. So I think it must have been like 41. But uh, the whole point of the movie was um, the actress or the, the lady in the film gets a divorce and goes on like a sleep-a-thon with men <laughs> in, in Europe. And it just kind of showed her going through and it was kind of jazz age looking. You know, she's drinking a lot. But then the Hays Code stepped in and said, eh, 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 you can't do that anymore. So you get back to kind of traditional, quote-unquote, American values and that kind of stuff. Uh, the 50s was big on the crackdown, too, because the 50s you had a more conservative administration step in. And so a lot of the movies in the 50s would show, at the end, you had to have the protagonist, generally a male, finds his love interest. And it's implied at the end that everything works out because they are together and they're in this kind of like... And the bad guy gets caught. The bad guy gets caught. And he gets punished for it. And if you notice a lot of like, let's oh, this is a little off topic, but like science fiction, you'll have in the 50s, you'll have a lot of where the military comes in and the military, they're the good guys. So like them, the giant ants come out and they have to call the military in because this was still, we were still high on a horse because we beat Nazi Germany. And so you right. see a lot of that in the 50s. Uh, the Hays Code started to filter out or a, Early 60s, and then once the studios collapsed financially, uh, that's when you started to see the graphic content filter into Hollywood. Uh, you had more violence, you had sex, you had the all the stuff that was pent up was kind of the floodgates were released. <laughs> and the problem was the studios couldn't, the studios collapsed, so they didn't own the theaters anymore. So those essentially just turned into like Grindhouse porn theaters um it was it was a weird time weird so, time to be alive using that umbrella of what was going on in hollywood and the industry at the time how does that overlay with the history of the disney with movies? disney oh, let me look here at some of these titles see my titles aren't i for some reason i always like, like i always it was like snow white then cinderella came then uh sleeping beauty but it wasn't there was a whole bunch between so snow i mean white. if you look uh so we had snow white 37 that was the tail end um, there's some disturbing stuff in Snow White, if you go back. I mean, the early Disney stuff, there's scary stuff in it. Well, also, um, one lady sharing a house with seven guys. <laughs> they were, hey, they were like her rich uncles. Right. Because they were digging but those still, diamonds up, but throwing would, them would that, Was that pre-code? Would code no, have, that would have been code, the code. Would code have allowed that? 37 would have been the code. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would have been. But... You think about, like, the queen wanting the huntsman to take her out and kill her and put her heart in a box. Like, that stuff isn't going to happen once the code... And you don't see that. Uh, Pinocchio teeters on that edge, but Pinocchio is a moral tale. It's, a, it's it's kind of a didactic tale of don't, don't do these things, young lad, or right. you'll turn into a jackass, literally. But then he has <laughs> to save his dad who tries to find him and... Pinocchio is a story of uh, what they call buildings Roman, 
where he develops based on these trials, almost Joseph Campbell-esque. Right. Um, and the trials he goes through makes him a better person, so then at the end, he's he, a, he he's becomes a, a, a real boy. Yeah, he has been filtered in society. He's a real boy. He's not right. hanging around with that fox and that other guy. Was that a cat? Fox and the cat. Yeah. Yep. That takes him to... Pleasure Island. Pleasure Island. Ban- uh, Bambi, ugh. That one's a tough one. I'm going to skip that one. Um, Fantasia, you had some terrifying imagery stuff, like that last scene with the... Or is that the last scene? Close to the last. Night, night on... With the Wagner. Right. With the Valkyrie or right. whatever that song is. It's not the Valkyrie, but... Um, I'm trying to look here. I've never seen Three Caballeros besides the song. Uh, song of the South... We never touched that one. That one's yeah. We just we'll skip right over that one. Oh, some of the South is great. Some of the South, I would well, have Disney to look, skips over it, so we'll skip over. I it know. Too. I would have to look it up, but I think wasn't the actor who played Uncle Remus was he the first African American nominated for an Oscar? I believe so. I think I don't know. He's, but he did get nominated. No, didn't um, the the lady from Gone, Gone with, with the Wind. Wind? Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I think she got it. The one yeah. that plays McDon- McDonald. Yeah. With Song of the South, I guess it wasn't the first where they incorporated, but Song of the South, you get what later, 20 years later, they incorporate into Mary Poppins, where you have live action and right. animation. But we go back to the Alice comedies that yeah, Walt they was were doing, doing it back then. Yeah, the, he, he was been doing that since, since the be, almost the beginning. Right. His animation was live action. And Song yeah. of the South is a slow movie. Yes. Man, it's slow. I have a, I have a copy of it. I do too. <laughs> Uh, Ichabod and Mr. Toad's great. I love that movie. Uh, Bing Crosby voices. Bing Crosby, is he all of it in Sleepy Hollow? Or Mr. what do they call it? Ichabod? Doesn't he do all the voices? I don't Because no, he I sings for Brom Bones and he... Right. And Ichabod only goes boom, 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 the whole time. <laughs> Was that copyright? Or were you gonna... yeah, we, we might get in trouble, <laughs> for, we might get in trouble did, for that one. I did the three notes. Um, but then we get into Cinderella, which was... And that's the fifties where she gets, she falls in love. She gets the prince. Right. They live happily ever after. I mean, Snow White technically does too. But then there's the whole reading of Snow White that she actually dies, and that she's actually dead because at the end when he goes up, it, like the castle's in the clouds and it's gold, and the seven dwarves are waving. So there's actually a reading of she actually dies. Okay. And Prince Charming is like a angel or something that takes her up to... I don't, I don't think I've heard that interpretation. Yeah, it's a, there's a reading of it. <laughs> but to go Dopey from sad. Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad to Cinderella, just visually, those are very oh, different yeah. movies. Well, Ichabod and Mr. Toad's like a... It's only about like an hour long, I think, it's total. Too, it's two shorts yeah. bundled together. Right. Yeah. And I don't know financially. Like, but but then you get into some big ones, though, in the 50s. I mean, you have Cinderella, you have Alice in Wonderland. Which was a failure when it came out. But now it's... In the Alice 60s and 70s, it became very popular because people watched it when they were yeah. stoned and really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, but it also brought in Mary Blair's artwork. That was when Mary Blair was doing very... It was very influential in the art stylings within the Disney Studios. Yeah, um, Peter Pan was... Peter Pan's great. Um, Lady in the Tramp. Could, they couldn't make Peter Pan today, though. Why? Oh, there's some. Yeah, there, there's the a mermaids lot of are, the mermaids and mermaids are topless, and yeah, the Native Americans like what Tiger makes, Tiger makes, Lily. What makes the red man red? Yeah, that's one of the songs. Yee. Yeah, Tiger Lily's an interesting character, though. Yeah, she's sassy. 
I always like Tiger Lily. Then we get to Lady and the Tramp. Then we get to Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty's a masterpiece. Sleeping Beauty used to scare me. Oh, man. There's some terrifying <laughs> stuff in that movie. Like that scene, that scene where the go- the green orb. Right. And it's just like whispering her name and she like follows it. Like that's a terrifying scene to take her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just the animation. Like she's sitting in that tower or whatever it is and the lighting is kind of eerie and then that green orb and it like she gets like hypnotized. Like that's the music gets the tone just shifts down. Like that's a then the whole thing with the dragon at the end. Like that's a what year was that? Sleeping Beauty 59. was nineteen fifty nine. It's violent at the end. He throws that sword and stabs her and that's a crazy movie. So let's step back a second. <laughs> Cause at this time and what's going on in the Disney company, so we're in nineteen fifty nine. By now, Disneyland has been open for four years. The Mickey Mouse Club has oh yeah has millions of followers around the country. And Disney was one of the first uh, innovators for television and media also for television. television. And he actually had to use television, the Disneyland special uh, weekly series on TV, to help fund making Disneyland. Yeah. If you watch those, a lot of those are just commercials for Ugh, yeah. for Disneyland. But if you look at it, it's because Disneyland opened July seventeenth, nineteen fifty-five. And nothing worked. Oh, it worked. They had some Jurassic problems. Park, remember yeah, that? Yeah, Jurassic Park. Um, With the Pirates of the Caribbean they, breakdown. They, they the broke ground basically a year before it opened. So in one year, they leveled the orange fields and built Disneyland for $17 million. Uh, um, but Walt would spend... Petty change. Well, not at that point in time, that was the <laughs> entire company. And Walt had mortgaged his house and sold his life Ooh. insurance policy to, to fund... Is that why he had the apartment? No, he had the apartment <laughs> so, he could, so he could monitor. So at this point in time, Walt had his attention separated. He was very heavily focused on the park. So he wasn't as busy or in, as involved in the movies. He was still there involved in pitching the movies and watching the reels and helping with them, but he also was doing the TV shows. He was doing the movies, the parks, the do, doing so the what action took, movies. So what took off then that he started making money again? Because the way I read it was like uh, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, and those were just flops. And the So what... Like what movie it was it? It couldn't have been Ichabod and Mr. Toad. No, it, the, were they the live action ones or the? They were they were just getting by. They mm. were doing the live action. They were getting enough revenue from the TV to keep things going. The TV shows and it just and then once the park opened and was as a, a success again, that was another one of Walt's follies. Everyone that he pitched the idea to thought it was going to be disaster and it was going to shut down the it was going to bankrupt the studios but it was also the right place at the right time because everyone had tons of money it's right. post-war america so it's yeah he's riding on that post-war boom right i could see where in like 48 it was still iffy if but then yeah you hit you hit 53 55 that's that you're like at the peak eisenhower era where right. everything's working out but yeah they i i i'm dusting off i think they hit the first million visitors within the first Three to five months, mm-hmm. which which people are traveling now because right. of cars and highway system. Yeah, yeah, because it he, all worked together. Because he picked, he, he hired a company that picked the location. They had three different locations picked in the L.A. area, and they picked Anaheim because that was where the interstate was going to go by. Yeah, 
And without the interstate, people wouldn't have been able to get to the park because at that point in time, there was nothing out there. It was just orange fields. Kind of like when Hollywood showed up because it was cheap. Right. Cheap land. So during this time, Walt's busy doing a whole bunch of stuff and they're still cranking out these movies going through. Yeah, 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone. Ew, we're starting to go on downhill slide. So Jungle Book. The Jungle, Jungle Book, according to the internet, was the last movie that Walt had his hands on. Um, because he did die in 1966, and yeah, it was he was really and he was quite sick during the last part of it. And at that point in time, he was heavily focused in on the Florida project, which was building Walt Disney World down in Orlando. And he was designing Epcot. So this, there's one story that he's in bed day or days before he's 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 he dies, and Roy's visiting him. And Walt is describing by drawing his finger on the ceiling what Epcot is going to look like, and what Disney World is going to look like. Because he, he actually wanted Epcot to be a town, right? It was like supposed people to be, would live there. It was the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Yeah. And the best way, if you look at urban planning, to build a new city or to renovate how we use our and use our spaces is to start fresh. You can't, you can't renovate on top of existing spaces to make new. Concepts and communities. You have to start fresh. That's what he was going to do with Epcot. Instead. So, yeah, so Jungle Book was the last one that he had his hands on. And then he died. And that was kind of the downhill slide. And the the studios were, they were confused. They had lost their leader. They didn't know what to do. And the, and this is also the era, though, if you look at the dates, that the studios started to collapse in general. Uh, so, yeah, right. So this is the era, I mean, you're looking at Jungle Book 67, but then the Aristocats 70, 73, like they couldn't, they couldn't keep up once the, once the government hit them with that monopoly. Were they part of that or did they own, were they owning theaters? All the studios, well, it was like, it was like the big three, I think it was like Paramount, but it affected all of them because the theaters got bought up. So, plus you had uh, Vietnam, plus right. you had... I mean, there was a lot going the, the, on in these in, end in of society. the 60s in society yeah. that hit hit the movies hard, and movies started to change, where you got more experimental stuff, you got more avant-garde type stuff, you got more violence, more because the code had kind of collapsed. They started with the... Then they started with the MPAA rating system that's still fluctuating. Right. But um, this was all during that, so he died during that. Which may have I, I don't have a rent deeply studio, to the studio was was confused because they apparently they were they would sit in movies and go what would Walt do and they yeah. got so handcuffed with thinking about what would Walt do they weren't being creative themselves. I mean, it's like a Steve Jobs when Steve Jobs died, right? But we got the Apple pen. But or at least at least he kind of had a his he his, set it up for him. Yeah, I mean, he set it up for yeah, he had yeah. what, the next five years of product lined yeah. out and now he handpicked his successor. Walt didn't pick a successor. Everyone just thought Walt was going to live forever. Roy wasn't it. Well, because Roy was going to retire. And Roy was more focused with the Disney World, right? Right. And Roy came, actually pretty much came out of retirement to finish up Walt Disney World um, in honor of Walt. And he died because Disney World opened on October 1st, 1971. And I believe Roy died in December of 71. Yeah, it was quick. Yeah. Right after Anyway, so then that had, leads then, us to then we had Card Walker come in, then Don Tatum, and then Ron Miller uh, moving in and taking over the reins of the Disney Studios. So 
Ron Miller was married to Walt's daughter. Card Walker, I believe, had been brought up through the Disney system. He was a director and producer, so he was not an outsider. And Don Tatum also had worked within the studios. They were promoting from within, but none of them had Walt's charisma, storytelling ability. Uh, they were more leaders or managers. They weren't leaders. So you get into this era of Aristocats, Robin Hood, um, The Rescuers, Fox and the Hound. We get into The Black Cauldron. <laughs> so Fox and the Hound came out in 1981. Are we ready to move into Yeah, that's phase a, we'll, two? we'll stop. We'll stop. That'll be the end of Phase 1. I mean, we can jump back when we get to the next episode with The Renaissance. Um, which is the era I remember growing up on. Right. Because I, like, I remember going to see Little Mermaid when it was in the theater. I was young, but I remember going to see it. Um, I think, I do remember going to the drive-in. I was little. I would have been five or six. And they had re-released, at some point, Peter Pan. And I remember laying in the back of my cousin's truck, because we went and right. watching Peter Pan. And I remember that was the first time I saw it. And what were your mem- what are your memories? Of- I just remember watching it. I I don't. I was did, that young. Did it fascinate you? As I mean, I remember the ride because I'd ridden. My parents had taken me to Disney World. Right. Um. But yeah, it's, I I remember watching it, or seeing it at right. least. I think I remember most of the scene with the cloud with the ship moving across the cloud or the cloud moving across the moon at the end. I'm trying to remember what my first memory of seeing a Disney movie is i'm looking through the list right now i don't remember my i don't remember my first disney movie now when i was young they had those sing-along tapes do you remember those the vhs right and they would have spliced and so i remember watching a lot of those i had one particular was my favorite was the seven dwarves and i loved the seven dwarves so here's a funny story for you since we're Moving into our next, <laughs> our last segment before this podcast is over. Um, I love the Seven Dwarves, love the Seven Dwarves. I used to march around singing hi-ho and all this, all this, all this. Um, and my parents took me to Disney World. I would have been about four. And we had these little vinyl records, 45s, that read the Disney stories, and I would sit and follow along. Right. My mom recorded with the tape all of those stories so on the way driving to Florida, I sat in the middle of the front, and I guess they put them in the whole way down, and I sat with those. Because they would, like, chime, and I would turn right. the page. My dad said the whole way down, he had to listen to those. I Snow White. They had then, to have driven your parents crazy. So, yeah. So we get to Florida, and I'm so excited because Seven Dwarfs, Seven Dwarfs, Seven Dwarfs. The first ride we go to is what, Tim? Snow Pinocchio. White's Adventure. They didn't have Pinocchio. Scar- Snow White's Scary Adventures. They renamed it. Right. At first, it was just Snow White's. Got on that, and that was the last ride I rode all day. I was terrified. <laughs> because the original version didn't even have the seven dwarves in it. The original version, if you watch it, is the witch coming out. Because it's a scary, you right. go, it's a dark ride. And so she's popping out. She's popping out. She's popping out. They even added the seven dwarves. I think I looked recently at the history of it. They went back in in like the late 80s and early 90s, and they added the dancing scene. Right. Um, and they added the seven dwarves. They're going up the hill to like catch her, like in the movie, or right. kill her, whatever right. they're going to do in the movie. Um, and she's pushing the rock. They right. added them. But when I wrote it originally, 
There were no seven dwarves. And you were done for the day. I was done. Like, it was terrifying. <laughs> Fast forward to 2015, 16, would have been 15. It was right before I moved back from Florida. And I got to go and finally ride the Seven Dwarves Minecart ride. And I had the best time of my life. My my four-year-old self was sitting right there with me. Oh, the new, the new roller the new, coaster? Because all it is is you go, you go around and you go through the mine and they're singing the songs that I loved. Uh, you go, they sing hi-ho and they march up the hill. That's all I wanted. You get done, though. You go past the, and they have the, I guess they have, because when the coaster stops, it has the cottage. And they incorporated, because they tore the old one down. Right. But they incorporated that scene, like they're in there dancing. Right. Yeah, they took some of the stuff from yeah. the original attraction, moved it into. The... But then when you go past the queen, still there, I was like, oh my god, they still got me. The stupid witch with the apple. <laughs> but the animate the, the like animatronics in that ride is quite amazing, actually. I haven't been down. It's neat. to Disney World since they've redone. It's Fantasy a neat Land. ride. Fantasyland itself is a hit or miss. It's kind of neat, uh, but that ride is that's a fun ride. So my first Disney park experience was Disney World, I believe. 72 or 73 maybe because it opened in 71 and i didn't go to a disney park again until the late 90s and it was disneyland and then by then i moved out to california and we were very regular visitors at disneyland and so that became my disneyland is my home park i prefer disneyland to walt disney world um just because there's I've, I've heard it's a better park. It, it, in, in my in my mind, it is. I heard it's less crowded though, and it's. Oh, Disneyland is amazingly packed at this point in time. Is it's. Oh uh, well, manager just went. She said it was, and I well, saw the went, videos. Well, she went when it, it rained. When it rains, it's pretty empty. And she also one went, day, but the other two it didn't. Yeah. But it, I've from what I've seen online, it's not like Disney World. Have you been to Disney World recently? No, I haven't. I haven't it is I've, awful. I haven't been to Disney World. I think since two thousand. I mean, you're talking. I stood in line for that Seven Dwarfs ride for two hours, over two hours, and it's probably a minute ride. If if that if yeah. that, because even the coaster part of it is quick. Yeah, and you go through when they're singing the um, digging song, and then it stops, and they do hi ho, and then you go through the little coaster, and then it's over. Yep. But. Yeah, anyway, I, I haven't been to Disney parks for a while, but nah, now it's Star Wars World, and I'm kind of over it. Though, from what I've been, I don't, I don't like, it. I don't like it, Tim. But from what I've been seeing, the stuff they're coming out, it does. I mean, look I'm, sure, I'm sure it looks neat. I'm it's, sure it's great. They're trying to keep up with Harry Potter World. I right. get. Yes. Harry Potter World's amazing, though. But the thing that draws you to Disney is the nostalgia of, and I just don't. Right. Incorporating Star Wars and Marvel into every everything is like you're losing some of that charm even fantasy land makes sense because it's like well you're still you know you well, still that, that, have that's one of the big arguments is up until that the lands are based on an idea right fantasy land adventure land yeah these are it's all americana they're, they're, they're nostalgia there are things in your head you're like i'm i'm an adventurer today right so star wars land even though it's not called star wars right. land but that's what everyone's calling it it's very specific it's tied to a property uh-huh. a, a story and it's like that's it's very different. It takes you a completely different mindset than in Fantasyland. This is if you're a kid, you love Fantasyland. If you're an adult, it lets you relive your your inner childhood. Right. Um, Adventureland lets you explore the world. Uh, Tomorrowland, the it's world the of future. tomorrow. Yeah. What is Star Wars Land going to do? Uh, yeah, I don't. But that's my thing. It's yeah, I but, like. 
feeling like you go there and it's you're reminded of all the Peter Pan I know the Peter Pan ride's still there, but I'm saying yeah. like I rode that when I was five and now I'm gonna bring my children to ride Peter Pan and they're gonna Right. But Star Wars is very I mean, I know that it's now ingrained in our culture. Um, will it be in thirty years? Uh, People said that when Universal did Harry Potter, it's like by the time they get it built, the movies will be done. No one's going to care, and it's still well. Now it's transcended that because my generation as kids were Harry Potter. Now, right now, I'm seeing younger people come into college loving Harry Potter. So, right. it's done it, and Star Wars did it technically because I I grew up on a different version of Star Wars than my dad did. Right, but at the same time, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Are theme parks? I mean, is this the way? I mean, I'm guessing this is the way of theme. That's a whole nother. Oh, yeah. So that's a whole nother thing. So is this the way of theme parks? Email us. <laughs> so pulling up a few levels. It's all about story. Yes. So well, theme parks too. Well, yeah. But I mean, between the movies and the theme parks, it's all about the story. bringing you into the movies. Right. Well, it's also just if you look at the movies, they're good. They're, yes. they're stories that bring you emotionally into them. Right. And those early Disney movies are great, though. Yeah. Uh, I need to go back. I just got Fantasia. I need to go back and watch it as an adult. I was bored as a kid, although even as a kid, the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence is good. And as an adult, I watched that recently. That's a that's a great sequence. But see, I still get fascinated by the other sequences because I get fascinated by the animation. Yeah. They're great. They're they're great vignettes and stories, but it takes me into a different level because I'm going I'm watching this like this is all done by hand when but the start, music too is. But the music is, is great too yeah he's, but when you watch Fantasia 2000 and some of them are CGI created yeah I didn't care for that as it much just, it's, it, it's nice some of the songs are great like I love Rhapsody in Blue that's one that, of my that's favorite actually pieces one of, the nice, one of my favorite snippets of yeah. Fantasia 2000 and then that. they did incorporate Sorcerer's Apprentice again right. into it which you have to. Right. But, we're going to reanimate it. They said, nope, let's just keep it as is. Yeah. It doesn't need reanimated. Right. It's... Uh, but... But as an adult, I feel like... I wanted to watch it as an adult, as I would enjoy it, like you just said. The animation. The As a kid, you're like, oh, no one's talking. Right? You but, know? But I think, just like the whole purpose of why we started the Persenia Film Society was some movies need to be seen on a big screen. Can we get Fantasia? I don't know if we can get Fantasia or not. But seeing it on the big screen with the surround would be... sound, that's that's the way it was that was uh-huh. that's the way it was made. It was intended to be seen right. that way. Um, watching it on your phone with no. headphones while you're at lunch, it's not you're not, you're not, you're not gonna get the same effect. <laughs> while you're at lunch. Yeah, while you're eating lunch <laughs> and texts are flying across your screen while you're watching it, that's it's that's not the way that's that's not the way it was supposed to be. Watched. That's what I always tell my students in film is when you, I understand that you're going to try to stream this movie, but a lot of these older movies were meant to be seen in a dark room, without these distractions. So try to make it, you know, headphones. Try to block out the external, right? Just for that shorter period of time, because if you're distracted on some of these movies, you're gonna miss. You're just you're just gonna miss things. Which was why, during the depression and the wars. The movies were popular. That yeah. was that was the way to get it away the way from, get, especially the depression. It was the way to to get away from get away from real life. Because we didn't have, they didn't have TV back then. The yeah. TV wasn't as big. People didn't have TVs. No, you didn't have TVs in the depression. So you had no other way to get away from. You had the radio at home, or you go to the movies, and people would get dressed up, yeah. and it was a night out. 
and now people show up in their in their pajamas. You, I mean, and, and you can rent blankets and sleep in the recliner. But it's, well, and that's a fascinating concept now with film and how with Netflix and streaming and it's it's tough even for those giant multiplexes to get people in the seats. So yeah, you're doing stuff like we're going to provide not provide, but we have beer now and we have blankets and we have reclining chairs because people could say shrug and say I'll just stream it at home. Right. And, which isn't the I mean it's, even movies today are meant to be seen on a big screen. That's just like like I I'm sure we'll talk about some Yeah, we will. We'll talk but, about but, that. But the like the Avenger movies all, all the superhero movies. That's the whole point of those. If you, you watch them on a small screen, they're not yeah, any you, good. But but now the TVs, we just got a 65-inch TV for Christmas. I think you just got a new TV. TV. I got a 65-inch. I got the QLED, which is better than yours. That's right. Tim. But the fact, that picture that, the fact that you get a 75-inch TV in your home for $1,000. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a big screen to be seeing things on. It's, it's still, the technology. It's still not the 20-foot screen you see in the theaters. No, and it's not a theater experience. I mean, there's movies I've seen just since we've started the Film Society. Vertigo, for instance. I had seen it once before on the big screen, but watching it on the big screen, I'd seen it a thousand times. It's almost like you catch new things because you're so engrossed in it, sitting in the dark theater with this giant image. Um, Whereas sometimes you watch on your TV, you can shut it off. You can go get Doritos. You can leave. And it's just... It's not the same because it takes you out of the narrative. Right. Or you're like, oh, I need to go change. I need to put the laundry in I need in to the go, dryer. yeah. You're thinking about this. Or you need to go let the dog out or whatever right. else. It's, uh, but anyway, that's so good for part one. That's good for part one of the Disney animated movies. Next time we'll be hitting up part the part Little two. Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. Uh, I was going to do it really fast. <laughs> My brain shut up. Lion King. You, you got through three. I know, I got through three. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Touchback and Notre Dame. Oh, I don't know. We'll have stories for those as well. Yes. We'll have a wrap it up. We have to wrap it up. Wrap it up, and we'll be back with part three. A few minutes for us, a few seconds for you. <laughs> Turned into Seinfeld. Now we're back for part three. In which Tim is going to review Ancient Aliens season one through three. Go, Tim. Well, I haven't opened the DVDs yet, so the review is Pending. forthcoming. It's forthcoming. So we're going to do rapid fire this time, just like we did last episode, but this time I'm going to rapid fire Dustin. I am in the hot seat. It He's appears. I'm nervous. And I just came up with these quickly. So. I have to answer them quickly. And you have, what, five seconds? Five seconds. Five seconds. You start, no. Yeah, five seconds. I don't have the timer, so. What reboot was better than the original? The Thing, John Carpenter's. There you go. What's the best Will Ferrell movie? Step Brothers. Wrong. There are none. <sighs> no, not Step Brothers. That was even wrong. Uh, other guys with Mark Wahlberg. That one's the best one. What about the, what was the one he did where he was hearing the voices in his head of an author? Um, uh, Stranger Than Fiction was that? That it? sounds right. Yeah. That one. That one. That was like a serious. Yeah, that one didn't upset me too much. Which is funny because they're popcorn grinders. Literally, Will Ferrell movies. You shut your brain off. Which leads us to the next rapid fire. <laughs> which At, popcorn grinder? Adam Sandler, comedic genius. Uh, no. Uh, no. No. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's fine. 
Really, I, I thought you'd be you'd be anti Adam Sandler. I didn't know. I like like Billy Madison. Like the, I always call Water Boy cracks me up. The two early ones, Billy Madison is good. Happy Gilmore's great. Um, I actually my favorite Adam Sandler movie is Anger Management with Jack Nicholson, but Jack Nicholson kind of steals he yeah. steals that movie. Yeah. But yeah, so he's fine. I mean, he's fine. I'm not. A, sometimes the people around Adam Sandler are funnier than he is, like Rob Schneider. Right. Uh, David Spade, I think, is funnier just because he's sarcastic, and I am too. So, wait, wait, what? No, I'm not being serious all the time. I'm. It's sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one. What book that you've read? Oh no. Oh. Would you want to write this movie script for? Um. Am I writing the script or doing all of it? All yeah. of it. What um, book? What book that you read? You want to turn into a movie? Shirley Jackson. Shirley, I'm gonna go with Shirley Jackson's "Hangs a Man," because um, I think I think that book right now in our current climate um, would be a hit, and it would be easy to modernize from the 1950s because it's a very it's very psychological horror um, with a pretty interesting female character. Um, and it would be, it would be easy to transition it from it was written in fifty I think she published that one in fifty three it would be really easy to transfer it to modern times because she goes off to college and she's kind of it's her trying to fit in but she doesn't fit in and there's this it's implied that she was sexually assaulted and so that kind of spirals out of control and she's in love with her professor and his wife is like an alcoholic it's a whole I would love. I would love to make that movie. So how come someone hasn't already? I don't know. I don't want anyone. Don't do it. Anybody? No. Don't make Hangs so a Man. You know what? Nope. Netflix. Shut up. Hollywood. Come to Dustin <laughs> and have him do this for you. He's got it all worked out in his head. Or um, who's who's your who's your who, who are you gonna cast as the two main characters? Um, Even though I don't know the story. Um, for Natalie, I would cast. I might cast the girl that plays Nancy in Stranger Things. She Why would. Her? I think she would fit it. Okay. Um, either her or I would cast. Um, probably not. Probably not Anya Taylor Joy. She doesn't. She's not the same kind of fit. Yeah, I'll go with Nancy. I forget what her actual name is. What you say? Natalie Dwyer. Yeah, she would be good. And then uh, for. Tony, who is her friend that appears towards the end, um, I would cast because Tony is a weird character. God, who's good? Who's good anymore? Ryan Reynolds. No, it's a girl. Tony's a girl. Um, Ryan Reynolds in drag. Maybe I would cast. Um, If I, I'm not good with names because I don't follow. Um, we just thoroughbreds. What's the other girl? Olivia Cook. Yes, I probably cast her because she's not that that not that Tony is quirky, but um, she's a different type of character because she's kind of like a doppelganger to Natalie. And then there's this really intense, awesome scene at the end of the book where. Tony like convinces Natalie to leave college or leave and they get on a bus and they just go out to this abandoned theme park and then she like 
like Tony tempts Natalie into the woods and it parallels when Natalie is being tempted into the woods earlier in the book by like this old professor that it is implied that he sexually assaults her. But then the way Shirley Jackson writes it is it gets right up to that point and he's like touching her and then she wakes up and her blouse is like ripped and you don't, she like suppresses it because you're following her so close, but then she suppresses it and then that part stops and then she goes to college. So then everything that happens after that is like a manifestation of that trauma. So see, that'd be an easy movie to make in today's. There you go. I don't have the money. I don't have the backing. No one likes me. But other than that. <laughs> but other than idea. that, we got it. We got it. You heard it here, folks. Or maybe Hank get in love with the game. <laughs> maybe you could pitch it to Greg when he's here. I could pitch it to Greg. And say, hey, Greg, help me. Let's get this. Let's get, let's get this done. You produce it. I will film it. I'll do everything. I'll do small cast, small set. Because he has experience doing those. He's done those. Yeah, that's the best way to go. I don't, I don't need 30 people holding donuts behind me. or You know, you have all those... With major motion pictures, if you sit in the credits because you're waiting to see like if Thor, a- Thor's hammer stuck in the ground or something, the credits are... Look at the amount of people that are just like key grips or like assistants to Mr... Downey Jr. It's, there's just so much wasted money of people just that want to be a part of it. Well, I've noticed that in the credits, it's even getting to the point where it's system administrators for the computers. Yeah. It's, um, well, that's really expensive. It's, it, well, yeah, I understand that, but the credits get so long because everyone who was employed by the company or any of the companies that right. were hired get listed. And you honestly don't need that. You don't need it. Because you look at the the movies movies of old all the credits were at the beginning of the movie and it lasted yeah you don't need five it. five screens here's a director producer who wrote music here are the main actors here's some other actors and really that book in itself there's not tons of characters in it because it's so focused on her so you wouldn't even really need 50,000 extras standing around right so there you go. There we go. Today's Greg, rapid fire. Greg Sestero. Cicero. <laughs> so our, All right. our plans are to release an episode of the podcast every other week on Fridays. Yes, bi-weekly. Bi-weekly. And then we will have bonus episodes. On Wednesdays. On They're Wednesdays called Quick Cuts. Quick Cuts in between. Where yes. It might just be Dustin talking. It might just be me talking. Yes. It might be no one talking, and it might just be silence for. So by the, <laughs> but they won't be the full length episodes. They will be short. no, they'll be short. So I'm going to record one tomorrow, right? Which will come out before anyone hears this. But once you have listened to it, you know what we're doing. Um, I'm going to review the new. We're time traveling right now. We are time traveling because I can already see in the future and in the past. Um, is that time traveling? I am going to be reviewing the recent remake of Suspiria. I have thoughts on it. There you go. I have seen neither of them, so <laughs> I will eagerly look, eagerly look It will not be, it will be spoiler free. I will not, because there are spoilers. In you're that really movie. good at being spoiler free when you talk about movies. You're, you're good at I try, I got to yeah. the line. It, it'll be a review though, so I don't have to give tons of stuff. Right. Will it be approved for all audiences? Yes. Okay. The movie is not. Right, you, you've mentioned <laughs> that there are parts of the movie that are The, the movie is not. <laughs> So, that's it for this episode. That is it. Dustin, you want to play some music for us? Yes, it's going to be A Whole New World from Aladdin. You ready? We can't do that now. Uh.